Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am thrilled and I am blessed to be in dialogue with Dr. Dia Gupta. She is lecturer in public history at the City University of London. We will be discussing her newly published book, India in the Second World War, an Emotional History, published in London by Hearst Publishers, 2023. Dia I could not be more humbled to be in dialogue with you today. No, thank you so much for having me on this show, Ari. It's my pleasure and my delight uh, to talk to you today about my book. Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar and the writer you would become as an adult today? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I live in the UK now. I live in London, uh, but I, I didn't grow up here. I was born in India. I was born in the the city of Calcutta, which is on the east eastern side of India, uh, and that's where I kind of um, I grew up. I had my scholarly training at Jadavpur University in Calcutta, there, which is a really kind of well known institution. And uh, really, I w- I was not, you know, I didn't have my training as a historian. I had my training as a literary scholar, so that probably explains my interest in you know texts in their various forms, you know, be that letters, be that diaries or memoirs, um, the ways in which people record their life experiences. Um, and, and obviously, I have a really strong interest in, in um, literature, in poetry, philosophical essays, um, intellectual thought. Um, and But it was really, I think, when I, I came to the University of Cambridge uh, in the UK um, to do uh, a bachelor's degree and then to study for an MPhil, that I got really interested in visual culture. So uh, I remember studying uh, Paradise Lost and sort of visual depictions of Paradise Lost and writing a dissertation on that. And I thought that was great fun. Um, and and I think this this sort of dual training in looking at visual culture, but also at, at texts really pushed my uh, approach in this book, where um, if you read it, you'll see that almost every single chapter has uh, one or more than one photographs that sort of open it, open up the theme of the chapter. Um, most of these photographs are from colonial sources, but there are also um, Indian photographers represented uh, within. What inspired you to write this book? What message or messages do you hope to convey to your readers? Yeah, that's a good question, Ari. Thank you. Um, I think, you know, when I first embarked upon my research, what really kind of pushed me to doing it was how little I knew about the Second World War in India. So, it, you know, it came from a place of, of curiosity, but also a place where I knew there was this massive silence around um, the two and a half million men who'd served for the British in the war. But equally important to me, the civilians, um, the women who who endured wartime conditions on the Indian home front. And I, I, at the start of my research, I realized how little I knew about any of this. And that was a real kind of motivating force for me to, to, to write the book. Um, I think also uh, the additional factor is that, you know, I grew up in India. 
there's a particular trajectory that uh, Indian history tends to take especially within schools. And it's always geared towards the independence movement, you know, the fight against uh, British rule, and then the ultimate sort of um, moment of independence in, in 1947, when you have the nation states of India uh, and Bangladesh, uh, India and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, at that point, it was called East Pakistan created. Um, and that, you know, was a very kind of defined pathway along which I was led as well. And what really intrigued me in looking at Indian um, writing and Indian visual culture from the Second World War is that there was this war history as well that took place at exactly the same time that nobody ever talked about. So, so yeah, these were sort of my two uh, impulses that made me research and write the book. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Mm, I think um, I mean, I think if I can make them curious about what it was like to be um, living as a colony in under the British Empire and enduring wartime conditions in the Second World War, uh, that would be incredible. And if people wanted to pick up the book and find out more, that would be even better. What are the primary themes in your book? Can you summarize your book for us? Yeah, sure. Um, I think right from the start, what I found was that it was really difficult to um, to write this sort of book. It's a really wide ranging book if you read it. You know, it looks at a multiplicity of sources. I look at, um, as I was mentioning before, I look at memoirs, I look at letters, I look at philosophical essays, um, I look at poetry and the novel. Um, and of course, I look at colonial photography. So, so going going um, into these is these sources and kind of making them play off against each other and engage in dialogue with each other, meant that I couldn't necessarily adopt this chronological structure to the book. So instead, I opted for a thematic structure. So the book has you know an introduction, it has an afterword, it has five chapters. Um, the chapters are on home ideas of home uh, as sort of seen in soldiers' letters, as seen in their memoirs. Um, and then I, I follow that up with a chapter on hunger in the homeland. So so from, from looking at the Indian perspective on the war, I found that I had to write about the war-induced 1943 Bengal famine. So that's the second chapter. The third chapter looks at unexpected male friendships that are formed because of wartime conditions um, with, you know, by Indian men, with often men from other nationalities and from completely different parts of the world to them. Uh, the fourth chapter um, is, is more literary, if you like. I, I look at the, the Indian writer Mulkraj Anand's novel, The Sword and the Sickle, and I, I compare and contrast that to to Indian women writers, uh, Muriel Vasi and Tara Ali Beg, who write poetry uh, about the war at this time. And the final chapter is probably um, the most sort of uh, intellectual, if you like. Uh, it looks at two writers, one of whom is a South Asian living in London during the Blitz. And he writes a poem called Out of This War, and his name is MJ Tambimuttu. And I compare and contrast him to uh, the great intellectual and philosopher uh, Rabindranath Tagore and uh, looking particularly at Tagore's last pieces of writing, uh, 
which is Crisis in Civilization, and his correspondence with um, the Japanese poet Yone Noguchi. What does your book teach us about empathy? Yeah, I think, you know, my, my book is titled, you know, An Emotional History. And I think if you're going to write about human emotions um, during wartime in particular, empathy starts playing a, a very key role in that. Um, but I found that, you know, when I started writing about an emotional history, you know, looking at the ways in which Indian people, men, women's, veterans, civilians, were articulating and representing their wartime experiences, um, they really some of this writing and some of this representation of emotion really destabilized our our standard categories of, you know, who is the enemy, who is a friend. Um, There's, uh, for instance, there's this wonderful memoir um, I write about uh, in the chapter on male friendships. It's uh, called Whom Enemies Sheltered, and it's by uh, John Baptist Craster. And and Craster is taken prisoner. Um, He's taken prisoner uh, in in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. And politically, you know, he he hates the Japanese. He he, he wants no truck with them at all. He's, he's very much for uh, continuing uh, to fight with British forces. But he, when you look at how he talks about particular Japanese guards or um, uh, uh, Japanese officers who he meets who are kind to him, who are generous to him, there's this whole range of emotion he expresses in relation to them. So, you know, ostensibly the Japanese to him are, are enemies and they're his they're his. Uh, uh, they're his guards and he is their prisoner. But emotions undercut those categories and make him empathize and bond with ones that he can really communicate and relate to. What new insights does your book reveal about the 1943 Bengal famine? Yeah, Ari, you know, as I was mentioning before, um, I came in, came to writing about the famine. That's like the second chapter of the book. Um, I came to it through the war, if you like. Um, I realized I couldn't really write a book about India and the Second World War without talking about the famine, because the famine was brought about by wartime conditions, and particularly because of British colonial policy at that time. And really, I started thinking that if we look at um, civilian deaths during the Second World War, you know, we look at, say, the Blitz in London, or um, um, we look at the the bombing of German cities, um, we equally should be considering hunger itself as a form of violence that then um, afflicts the bodies of over 3 million people in Bengal. Um, And I, uh, for this chapter, I I look a lot at soldiers' letters and how they were discussing and writing about famine. I also look at a Bengali novel that represents famine, and I look at Bengali poetry that discusses famine. Can you say more about the importance of male friendships in Indian World War II writings? How is homosociality represented? Can you elaborate and go into more detail? Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that really, you know, out of my um, uh, archival research, when I was looking at some of the material I had uncovered, like soldiers' memoirs, particularly these prisoner of war memoirs, I realized that homosociality and male friendships was just, you know, that theme just leapt out at me from, from this material. Um, and, and really what I was saying is that, that, uh, 
the the memoirs I focus on look at uh, male friendships again as this as this kind of transcultural um, uh, phenomenon. You know, there's a memoir I talk about um, by this soldier, this Indian officer, in fact, called R. G. Salvi, and it's called whom enemies sheltered and the whole memoir is really about his relationship with this italian soldier so salvi is taken prisoner of war uh, he's taken to italy um and then uh, he manages uh, after the the fall of italy he is uh, his prisoner of war camp is is kind of opened up and he before german forces take over he manages to escape into the italian countryside and the whole memoir is this ode to this to this friendship with this uh, Italian former Italian soldier Romano, who protects him and saves him. And there's this extraordinary moment, you know, when the two men, Salvi and Romano, are sitting under this this tree, and Salvi is feeling the earth on uh, uh, the soil um, under the tree with his fingertips and thinking, you know. This soil is the same as the place where I came from. The sky is the same as the place I came from. Then what are these distinctions we impose on ourselves between being brown and being white, between being Indian and Italian? So it's this kind of deep um, transcendental sense, if you like, of male friendship in that memoir. How does your book advance our understanding of trauma? Mm, That's a a really good question. Um, I mean, I think one of the things the book does is to really look at the different ways in which trauma is registered through writing. So I talk a lot, particularly when I discuss writing on famine, um, and I talk a lot about the role of of witnesses and onlookers. One of the reasons behind that is that the tragedy of the famine is that those who endured starvation did not survive to tell us their stories. So it was often people who were witnessing what had happened to them who then wrote about that experience. So I was interested um, in those sections in noticing how um, trauma is registered through language. So there is this um, extraordinary poem I found um, by uh, by a, a, an Indian uh, female writer called Tara Ali Beg. I think I mentioned her at the start of the, the podcast, um, where she talks explicitly about the famine in in the language and idiom of modernist poetry. So and she talks about how how reduced and throttled her own self sense of selfhood is when she sees, you know, devastation on such a scale. What is your book's contribution to the study of World War II? I mean, I I hope, um, I really hope the book is able to make a significant intervention in in our understanding of the Second World War. You know, to my mind, the Second World War is still very rooted in um, a certain type of Eurocentrism, US centrism, you know. But, you know, we've got to remember that, particularly when we look at Britain, Britain wasn't alone in the war. Um, It was supported by the British Empire. And colonial experiences and emotions of the the war are a really important, um, not simply addition, but a really important means through which we can understand how this war unfolded for people across the world, not just in Europe and and the States. so I, I really hope my my book lends uh, complexity 
and nuance to our understanding of the Second World War, because principally because the minute you consider colonial emotions, colonial experiences of the war, it's a lot more complicated than simply the fight against fascism. Can you tell us about the photography of Sunil Jana? Okay, well, this brings back uh, uh, this brings us back to some of my kind of um, interests in visual culture, and uh, uh, and Shunil Jana himself was uh, uh, a young photographer in the nineteen forties. He was in his twenties, um, and he um, he was in his twenties, and he was uh, recruited by. Um, uh, the Communist Party uh, of India to take pictures of um, famine-struck villages in in Bengal, and and to document them for um, uh, People's War, which was this Communist Party of India newsletter, uh, and and so two of his pictures that I study in the book um, were published in People's War, and the, uh, there's a really kind of specific reason why I chose to focus on Shunil Jana and his photography, rather than on the standard images of famine we might be more used to seeing, which which sort of shows us depleted skeletal figures um, um, who are barely human. Um, I, I, I didn't want to reduce human beings to, the, to, to those, you know, near starvation categories. Rather, I wanted to focus on how Shunil Jana looks at them as human beings. You know, the two photographs um, I discuss, one of them shows this line of women and their children uh, waiting for, for food. Uh, but they are whole, whole human beings. They are, you know, in their very ordinariness, in their motherhood. Uh, they show us how vulnerable, vulnerable they are, but also resilient. And the other images of um, orphaned children who are kind of squatting in a field, also waiting for their food rations. And it's that vulnerability and pathos you see when you see a small child um, who's been rendered fragile because of circumstances completely beyond his or her control. Can you tell us about Bibhut Ibushan Bandiopadhyay's realist and humanist novel Ashani? Sanket, Intimations of Thunder? Yeah. Why is it um, noteworthy? Yeah. Um, Bibuti Bhushan is an incredible novelist. You know, I I wish more of his works um, existed um, in English. Um, he, he writes in Bengali. Um, and, you know, one of my hopes is to be able to do some, some translations um, of some of the texts that I've uh, considered in this book in their original sort of Indian language. Um, and for me, Bibuti Bhushan, in a, in a similar vein to what I was talking about uh, Shunil Jana, uh, Bibuti Bhushan renders his characters in Oshani Shonket or The Intimations of Thunder, this extraordinary novel on the famine, in very real, lovable, you know, human terms, you know. They are flesh and blood creatures. They are not simply victims you know, marginalized and and kind of framed by that identity of being victims. In fact, you know, he hardly the most of the book is really about their their life in the village. You know, it's uh, about a village school teacher, his wife, um, their children, the dynamics of of that particular village, into which war is then intruding. 
um, in the form of planes that fly over their head, but also in the form of market shortages and this extraordinary vanishing of rice from the marketplace. Um, and the novel ends, I mean, technically it's an unfinished novel because Bibhuti Bhushan never finished it, but it ends on this note of, um, of, of, you know, optimism in the sense that, you know, women band together and, and women decide to stay on in the village and look after each other. Um, and we don't know what happens to them because that's where the story ends. But uh, but it's a, it's a real kind of testament to how we can represent people who are, are um, afflicted by a terrible, by terrible external events in human, complex, warm and real terms. Who was Muriel Wasi? Can you contextualize her? Yeah, Muriel Wasi was one of the um, uh, Indian women writers I look at in the book. Um, she was part of the women's auxiliary corps in India, um, and she was staunchly anti-fascist. She was um, no supporter of uh, of the Axis powers at all. But equally, she she writes about. Um, her wartime years in this memoir called The Narrow Corridor, um, where she sees how much the country is suffering as a result of wartime conditions. And, you know, she becomes determined to be an activist and to respond um, to the needs of her country at, at that moment in time. And uh, the poem that I particularly focus on, which, you, which she, she wrote during the war years, and it, which was published in this anthology just after the war, uh, is written in English and, you know, it talks about how um, the country India is seen as this suffering mother um, and how the world is ready to turn its back on this suffering mother. But she, as in the poet herself, is willing to stay um, and, and kind of nurture and look after this, this suffering mother. Uh, and it's quite a Victorian poem in lots of ways. It, it, it employs a lot of um, Victorian language and imagery. So in that sense, it's quite a contrast to Tara Ali Beg's more modernist poetry. Um, nonetheless, it's it's um, it was an extraordinary find in the archives for me. Can you tell us about the life and work of the novelist Baron Basu? Can you summarize Baron Basu's Bengali novel, Rangroot, The Recruit? Yeah. Um, again, this was another um, incredible find in the archives for me. This is a, a really rare and out-of-print novel um, at the time of its publication, which was in 1950. It was uh, translated into many languages. And uh, interestingly enough, I managed to find an English translation that I bought off eBay, which was a, a, quite a, a fun thing. Um uh, to be able to get my hands on. Uh, so English translations of this novel do exist. And, and Boring Bashu really uh, looks at the experience of being um, a Bengali soldier. So this is a soldier from East India um, fighting for the British during uh, the Second World War and being stationed on the Burma front. But, but his whole representation of this experience is highly politicized. Um, and, and he sees his whole identity of being an imperial soldier uh, as imprisonment. So, you know, I look at him in the chapter on male friendships when I am um, considering the prisoner of war memoirs uh, written by two Indian men where they are actually prisoners and then look at the more psychological aspects of how uh, 
being an imperial soldier becomes imprisonment, psychological imprisonment for Borin Bashu and his characters. What does your book teach us about silence? How are erasure, forgetting, and amnesia manifest in your research? Yeah, that's um, that's an interesting question, Ari. And I think it kind of goes back to my 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 main point um, during the start of our podcast, where you asked me what brought me to my research. And I think it's it's the aspect of silence, really, around colonial emotions, colonial experiences of the Second World World War, um, that I hope this book is is able to fill in some small way. Um, you know, it's not a definitive, uh, uh, comprehensive scholarship of, of of India and the Second World War. I doubt if any such thing is possible. But I I look at the book is is. As a, as a promising start, you know, towards populating that silence with multiple voices from the past in India and trying to recover as much as I can um, their war emotions. Can you tell us about Shantilal Rai's work, Arakan Front? Can you yeah. describe the plot and narrative qualities in this book? Yeah, so Arakan Fronte, which which means on the front lines at Arakan. The Arakan is in Burma, um, uh, modern day Myanmar. Um, he, he is it's the it's a memoir written um, by this uh, uh, Indian medical officer, Shantinal Ray, um, who finds himself in Burma. He's part of the British uh, Indian Army, um, and it's quite an extraordinary uh, tale of you know, the the daring do and adventure and call of war to which um, Shantinal Ray as a doctor responds. He wants to see new places. He wants to travel. He wants to be away from the boredom of home to this increasing sort of disillusionment with the nature of war, with the nature of the, the violence he sees all around him. You know, this was a, a place where um, cosmopolitan troops from all across the world gathered in Burma to fight the Japanese. And Shantilalve witnesses soldiers from across the world dying in this endeavor. And it really it disturbs him and, and, and makes him deeply sort of upset. And, and this kind of comes out in, in the memoir. At the same time, you sort of see this growing radicalism within him which causes him to question why uh, Indian soldiers in in hospitals are given lower quality bedding than their English counterparts you know um, why there is discrimination within the army itself um, why he is treated differently because he's not white and and really the the memoir ends um, on the brink of Shantilal Ray being told that he's able to go home um, and he is looking forward to going home to a free and independent India. So it's this, it, it charts this incredible journey of someone who was, you know, off to war to seek adventure, but finds himself coming home disillusioned with war, but radicalized and full of this energy, anti-colonial energy. What was the spectrum of opinion in India regarding Japan's occupation of Burma? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a difficult thing to gauge because you know for example Indian soldiers who were writing letters back home don't often talk about Japan I mean one of the reasons could be that you know it's 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 they don't find it 
immediately important or relevant to their lives, but equally, they know their letters are being censored and intercepted by colonial authorities, and there are certain things that they don't mention, therefore. So, so in a sense, in the soldiers' letters, there's quite a fair amount of silence, I'd say, about um, the Japanese conquests in, in Southeast Asia. Um, but, you know, in more um, elite forms of writing, for example, um, um, in, in Tagore's work, you certainly find not certainly find a, a questioning of Japan's imperial ambitions. He doesn't directly comment upon um, Japan's conquest of Burma because, you know, Tagore dies in 1941, August 1941. Uh, Japan takes over Burma in uh, 42. But he is deeply critical um, of Japan's uh, imperialist ambitions, um, just as he is equally critical, if not more, of um, European imperialism and what he sees as um, the barbar barbarism that Europe has inflicted on the rest of the world uh, through colonialism. Um, you also find, you know, and I, I mentioned this in the book, you find songs that are being sung by the Indian People's Theatre Association, which is this anti-fascist organization um, created in the 1940s uh, that are telling the farmers, you know, having songs for farmers that talk about uh, imperialism within their home and uh, imperialism on their doorstep in the form of Japan. So so I, th I think, you know, one of the points that I really want to highlight in this podcast is the political position of being anti-colonial um, could also be anti-fascist. You know, it didn't mean that you have to pick one, that one had to pick one or the other. Uh, there is lots of evidence to show that that Indians held both anti-fascist and anti-imperialist views. Can you tell us what the life and legacy of the Tamil poet M.J. Tambimutu what is the significance of his book, Out of This War, from 1941? Hmm. So Out of This War is actually a long poem that Tambimutu writes. Um, he's known uh, better as a poetry editor in London um, and for publishing the work of well-known English poets. Um, he's less known for his own poetry, but he does write this, this, um, this long poem deeply influenced by um, modernist techniques and experimentation in the poetic form uh, by people like T.S. Eliot. Uh, in fact, Tambimutu has a, has a really good relationship with, with T.S. Eliot when he lives in London. And out of this war really looks at um, why, uh, what is the form of savagery that is inflicted on the world when a global war is unleashed again. So, so it, it, it firstly looks at the First World War and the Second World War as, as intimately connected phenomena. They're not discrete and separate products, uh, but they're connected through their history. They're connected in the cyclical pattern through which war uh, uh, is, is recurring. Um, and it also imagines... Um, a time and a place without war, without this incredible global suffering. But the only place Tamimutu can go to, to imagine um, a world without war, is to this, is to this you know, um, idea of this verdant, splendid East, which is also a product of his own imagination, um, uh, harking back to, to 
where he came from, which is um, Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka. And he looks at it as this imaginative source of richness and ripeness and fulfillment that currently is, is just missing from the world, going through wartime deaths, but equally going through wartime shortages. Can you tell us about John Krasta's memoir, Eaten by the Japanese? What transpires in this narrative? Yeah, so so I think I, I talked a little bit about uh, Krasta and his relationship um, with the Japanese. Uh, I should clarify that this uh, title, Eaten by the Japanese, is not something that Krasta himself chose. It was chosen by his son many years later when the memoir was eventually published. So this is quite an extraordinary memoir in the sense that it was scribbled on in pencil um, in the post-war years, just immediately after Krasta was released from uh, uh, a Japanese prisoner of war camp. But it was published many, many years later in the early 1990s by his son. It was just left forgotten uh, in this in this trunk in, in their house. Um, and it's in many ways, ways quite a sparse memoir. So um, Krasta is an ordinary Indian soldier. He's not an officer. He, he um, experiences great deprivation as a, as a Japanese prisoner of war. Um, but equally, as I was mentioning before, there are moments in the memoir that are punctuated by his, his sympathetic um, connection with uh, with a fellow human being, either that's a fellow sufferer, a, a, also another prisoner of war, or with his Japanese captors and guards, not all, all of whom are, are terrible. Um, there are some certainly who are, but many others are not. Uh, and in fact, you know, he, he talks about a, a particular Japanese guard called Mina, and he calls him the good Mina. And it later transpires uh, uh, that uh, Krasta has a daughter after his uh, return from war, uh, and he calls his own daughter Mina. So it's a, a kind of emotional legacy of his wartime years that you see in his post-war life. How did Indian thought and literature during World War II debate notions of just war and their attitudes toward Britain, Japan, Germany, and the broader conflict? Yeah, <clears throat> It's a complicated question, let's put it that way. As I, as I said earlier, the minute you start looking at colonial experiences, colonial emotions of the war, this narrow idea of the war as the good war breaks down. Um, it becomes immediately a more complicated fight for freedom. But what kind of freedom are we talking about here? Um, and really, if you look at a lot of the, the writing, Indian writing from this time, say if you look at... Um, the ways in which Nehru was thinking about the war. So this is Jawaharlal Nehru. He was um, part of the Indian National Congress and later post-independence India's first prime minister. Uh, and they see, you know, the fight against fascism as conjoined with the fight against colonialism, as conjoined with the fight against imperialism. So, so really, you know, they are not debating the fact that fascism has to be fought, but what they are debating is that colonialism equally needs to be battled. Um, and you cannot fight one without fighting the other. So I think the whole complicated picture of what is a just war, what is a good war, um, is, is broadened out. It becomes many 
you know, it becomes textured and nuanced the minute you, you start inhabiting this war through the eyes of um, uh, colonial subjects. Can you describe the importance of Mulk Raj Anand's novel, The Sword and the Sickle? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's um, a, 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 another novel I look at. Uh, I actually compare and contrast Mulk Raj Anand with the, the two women writers we mentioned earlier, uh, Muriel Wasi and Tara Ali Beg. And so Anand is, you know, one of a, a really, really well-known uh, Indian writer of uh, English novels. Um, during the time he was writing The Sword and the Sickle, his own works were banned in India by colonial authorities. So actually he found his his uh, uh, audience in, in England at that time. And The Sword and the Sickle is part of a trilogy. So it's what's known as the Lalu Trilogy. And, and Lalu or Lal Singh was a soldier in the First World War. Um, and uh, there's this incredible book that Anand writes called Across the Black Waters, uh, which is about Lalu's experiences in the, in the First World War. Um, and this is written just at the brink of the Second World War beginning. But um, The Sword and the Sickle is, is about Lalu's return back home. And he is a disillusioned soldier in many ways. But equally, political conditions on the Indian home front are galvanizing him, motivating him, and radicalizing him. And I think um, the whole question of the fact that this novel is being written during the Second World War, where, where you know two and a half million men from India have already been sent off to war, um, this whole makes this whole question hang over the novel, you know, if the First World War can radicalize Indian soldiers and make them aware of their political rights, then what will happen as a result of the Second World War? Um, and this is why I was I was interested in focusing on this novel um, in my book. Can you comment on the social reformer and female poet Tara Ali Baig? Can you describe her biography and her legacy? Yeah, so Tara Ali Baig is is, you know, she was a, a she was a, a, a social reformer. Um, she's not really known for her creative writing at all, but I found her poem uh, anthologized in this incredible uh, collection of poetry. Um, it was known as uh, Poems from India by Members of the Forces, and there are only two women represented in this anthology, and one of them is Sara Ali Bey, and uh, she came from quite uh, an elite family in India, um, and she writes in this poem quite explicitly about the Bengal famine. Um, she herself, because she came from a, a privileged background, did not herself endure famine, but she certainly witnessed its, its consequences. And, and um, she writes about um, the effects of that witnessing in, in her poetry. Uh, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, she talks about how her own self is sort of suppressed and throttled and becomes becomes tiny because of the weight of of suffering she has to witness and she makes us inhabit the character of um a suffering farmer who's come from the village looking for rice to the city uh, and uh, also um uh, a skeletal woman who people see on the streets wanting food but they don't, you know, they don't help her. She's ignored. And really what Tara Ali Beg is, I think, pushing us to say, to, to, to realize is to not see 
suffering on the scale, to close your eyes to suffering on the scale is absolutely inhuman. Can you comment on the forms of prison writing that you examine in this book? How are prison writings different than the other pieces of memoir, poetry, mm. and literature that you examine in your research? What do yeah. prison writings reveal as historical sources? Yeah, I found um, prison writings to be uh, uh, an incredibly rich thing in the book. Um, and this is um, for, this forms the chapter on, on male friendships, where I look at two prisoner of war accounts. Um, and it's incredible, the contrast between them. So one of them, I, I mentioned this before, is by an Indian officer called R.J. Salvi. And he writes this memoir called Whom Enemies Sheltered, which, as I said before, talks about his, his growing homosocial bond with uh, the former Italian soldier Romano. And in some ways, it's a really romantic memoir, if you like. You know, it's it's got this beautiful Italian countryside. It's got this growing friendship with this with the, this Italian prisoner, uh, Italian soldier. Um, and because Salvi is an Indian officer, he really isn't treated badly in his prisoner of war camp at all. He's treated with all the rights and privileges of the officer class. Um, also, he's in Europe. Um, so European prisoners uh, of war on the whole were better treated than they were in Asia. Um, I mean, one of the reasons behind this is that Japan never signs the Geneva Convention. And um, and so when we come to Krasta's memoir, and Krasta, who writes Eaten by the Japanese, um, really kind of experiences tremendous depletion, physical psychological, emotional, at the hands of uh, the Japanese. And he's also being asked to defect all the time and to join this nascent Indian National Army that was being formed out of prisoners of war uh, who would fight with the Japanese um, against British rule. And because he refuses to be part of this army, um, uh, he's not given food rations adequately. He's not given water even sometimes. Uh, and, and, and really, it shows us perhaps, you know, in some ways, the, 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 the limits of, of human endurance and, and how writing um, Krasta has this really sparse, uh, dry, ironic writing style um, is pushed to its very limits by the, the incredible physical duress he has to face uh, as, a, as a prisoner of war. And I suppose my third sort of point is that I look at the psychological dimensions of, of um, not prison writing, but looking at uh, uh, an experience of war as imprisoning. And this is Borin Bashu's novel, Wrong Root, or The Recruit, where to him, being part of the, the Indian army, serving as an imperial soldier under the British is an incarcerating experience. You describe the content and reception of Rabindranath Tagore's work, Crisis in Civilization, 1941. Yeah, so I, I focus on this. This is sort of my last chapter um, when I, I um, look at the testimonial value of intellectual thought such as Tagore's. Uh, and I compare and contrast him to Tambimutu, who we've just discussed, who writes the poem Out of This War. Um, I mean, 
crisis in civilization is really something that Tagore is writing at the end of his life. He writes it uh, as a lecture three months before he dies. And he's he's sort of deeply disillusioned with European civilization, with the onset of global war yet again. Um, I mean, this is, you know, this kind of repeated entangled cycle of war and nationalism uh, and imperialist greed is something Tagore has been critiquing right from the start of the 20th century. And I think he's very disillusioned by the 1940s to to see what the world has become. Um, But equally so, uh, I think, and we don't see this so much in Crisis in Civilization, but in his his, letters exchanged with the Japanese poet Yoni Noguchi. He's equally disillusioned with what he sees happening in Manchuria and, you know, the 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 relentless and brutal Japanese conquest of China. And this is something he's very critical of as well. So so I suppose Tagore is really seeing the war itself as a moment of crisis where, you know, so-called civilized nations can no longer lay that claim to civilization. Can you tell us about Rabindranath Tagore's exchange of letters with the Japanese poet Yone Noguchi? Yeah, I think we sort of just covered this. So, you know, Tagore has this incredible exchange with um, uh, Yone Noguchi, who was a a Japanese poet and a, a very dear friend of Tagore's. But they part ways because... Uh, uh, intellectually and emotionally because Yone Noguchi wants Tagore's support for Japanese imperialism and Tagore is someone who who cannot support imperialism in any form. Um, He is critical of it in Asia and he's critical of it in Europe. Um, um, So, so, you know, the exchange of letters ends on on an acrimonious note and their own sort of fraternity, if you like, their own relationship is never restored again. How can Rabindranath Tagore be appreciated in a new light through the lens of your research? I think there's been um, a lot of writing on on Tagore, uh, who, you know, is is an extraordinary um, prolific uh, writer. Uh, There's been so much work on him on his on his poetry, on his uh, novels, on his creative writing, um, uh, there's increasingly recently been work on him as a political thinker. You know, his essays on nationalism, for example, um, have been written about quite substantially. But I don't think he's ever seen as a Second World War writer. You know, he he lives until August 1941. He doesn't really, you know, he doesn't see the Bengal famine, for example, which would have completely uh, devastated him. Uh, he doesn't see the worst excesses of the Second World War in terms of the concentration camps being established. Um, but what I try to do is I, I look at some of his letters, I look at his exchange with Yone Noguchi, I look at his uh, his uh, final lecture, Crisis in Civilization, to give us a sense of how the Second World War impacted his writing and his thinking. And really, in some ways, it's a coming together of um, the forms of violence of which he had been critical right from the start of the 20th century. The Second World War is this sort of ultimate culmination of that. In what ways do the writings and works that you examine in this research deal with loneliness and solitude? Hmm. That's a really lovely question, Ari. Thank you for that. Um, 
I think I don't focus on loneliness and solitude um, as separate themes to my chapters, but they're very evident. Uh, let's take the example of, of soldiers' letters that they receive from home, as well as the letters that they are writing that are sent home. Um, often soldiers will talk about how miserable they feel, how sad, how despairing. Uh, they even use the language of, of lunacy and, and madness because they don't hear from their loved ones at home. Um, and, and I think, you know, being itinerant men on the move, um, separated from home, um, the idea of home takes on a certain poignancy and emotional resonance for them. And being away from home for, for long periods of time, as, as many of them, many Indian soldiers had to be, creates these uh, articulations of solitude and loneliness in the letters. How can students of memoir and autobiography elsewhere in the humanities who are not necessarily in the field of South Asian history or South Asian yeah. studies mm -hmm. benefit from the insights of the writers and authors that you examine in this research? What can students of life writing learn from Indian contributions to the genre of life writing? Yeah, I think that's a really, um, really important question um, because certainly uh, my focus is on South Asia, but I think there are broader implications for uh, this work in terms of, as you say, um, uh, life writing, uh, autobiography, memoir, uh, letter writing, um, as well as um, poetry, uh, um, philosophical essays, the novel, you know, all of these are shaped in particular ways by uh, Indian experiences of the Second World War um, that have broader implications for genre. Uh, so I, I think one of the things that we can consider when we look at life writing uh, and Indian life writing from the Second World War is that a lot of this life writing isn't authored in the sense that we are familiar with. We're very familiar with tracing the life um, of a single person through their life writing, be that a, a, a memoir or an autobiography or perhaps a, an exchange of letters. Um, and, and we're very familiar with, with being able to do that. But, you know, let's take the case of Indian soldiers' letters from the Second World War. These letters don't exist in their original formats. They exist um, as extracts in military censorship reports. And often the letters are, you know, we don't know the names of who's writing them. We know very little about how they've been authored. Sometimes the military censor will tell us that a letter was written originally in a particular Indian language, like say Punjabi or uh, Bengali or Malayalam or Tamil. Um, at other points he might tell us, oh, this letter to a soldier came from West India. But at the other times he won't tell us these, these pieces of information. So our, our sense of um, a particular life, the details of a particular life, are difficult to, to recover from Indian soldiers' letters. So it shows us, I think, how we can articulate um, war experience through life writing from these anonymized, fragmented sources, which are mediated by a colonial censor, but equally are our only sources of, of information on non-elite um, Indian soldiers' lives during the war. So I think it, it really broadens and expands what we consider life writing to be 
and what we consider those sources of life writing to be. What would you say is your book's contribution to Indian and South Asian history and historiography? Yeah, Ari, I, I think right at the start of the podcast, we, we talked a little bit about why I came to this research. And I talked about the silences, about my own curiosity in this field. Um, <clears throat> And I think I also mentioned there that, you know, particularly when I was in school in India, there was a particular track that I was being led down um, in terms of my my knowledge of Indian history. And that was about the anti-colonial movement, the independence movement, nationalism, and then the creation of the nation states of India, uh, Pakistan, East Pakistan, which later becomes Bangladesh. And... Uh, what I what I aim to do and what I hope the book will do is destabilize that um, very uh, standard narrative of, of Indian history during the 1940s and complicate it by looking at the time of war as a contested and difficult period of, of Indian history where you have two and a half million men signing up to fight for the British at the same time as there are political movements against British rule in India, mainly the, the 1942 Quit India movement. So I hope my book really complicates um, Indian history, South Asian history and historiography, as well as um, recovering as much as possible um, this marginalized and and kind of silenced history of war experience in South Asia. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time has gone since completing this book? What are you working on next as your current project? What are you working on now? Okay, um, great question. So um, I have a 10-month-old baby daughter, so she is my very much my next project. She takes up wow. a lot of my time. <laughs> She's, uh, um, yeah, it's a bit more intense than writing a book, believe it or not. But uh, in terms of my research, I really want to, to look more into um, hunger uh, uh, as a product of war. Um, I also want to, to look at, um, uh, at the cultures of food uh, in India and what it means when uh, food is suddenly and violently taken away from people, um, what sort of social relationships um, and structures are disrupted when that happens. And, and equally, I'd, I'd like to sort of relate that research to our present day times, you know, to the food crises we're experiencing today, to food insecurity and instability that that is very much part of our lives today, um, and, and relate that to a the historical crisis of hunger during the Second World War in India. That sounds like an amazing project. Thank you so much. Yeah. Although Thanks. nothing compares with raising a newborn child. <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> indeed. As we end today's dialogue, I am signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast channel on the New Books Network podcast Today, I have been honored, blessed, thrilled, and humbled to be in dialogue with Dr. Dia Gupta. She is a lecturer in public history at the City University of London. We have been in dialogue regarding her newly published book, India in the Second World War, An Emotional History, published in London by Hearst Publishers 2023. Thank you.